All right, all right. We got a special Sunday today. It is our last Sunday, actually, in this location um, at 4 p.m. So, sorry if you don't know this already, uh, we are meeting next week at our new location, 8126 Broadway Street at 10:30 a.m. And so, we praise God for that opportunity. Uh, yeah, Amen. Uh, it's a, it was some. It is an opportunity that we have uh, that God has opened these doors. Uh, I will tell you this about the location that we're going to. Uh, if you haven't heard this already, they had been. They had. This is a Christian nonprofit. That opened up uh, just down the road, and they had been praying for a church. Uh, specifically to, to come worship on Sunday because uh, they wanted that place to be a place where God's ministry can happen in, in many ways, shapes, and forms, but especially on Sunday. And so uh, they had been praying, and, and they had actually been praying for us particularly for, for some time, and I'd hoped that God would move in our hearts, and actually they were maybe a little farther ahead of us than, than hearing the, from the Lord. And, and so uh, we, we, we believe this is the opportunity God has for us. We're really excited. Next week, uh, uh, 8126 Broadway, 1038. Uh, we'll see you there. But until then, we got, uh, we got a lot to talk about. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. Uh, the ushers are my kids, so I've, I, if they throw it at you, make sure you catch it. Uh, come on. Yeah, you can throw it at them. Not really. Just hand it to them. Um, it's all right. Yeah, yeah, we got one up there. Good. Well, uh, today's subject is we're talking, uh, we're having the sex talk in church. You're like, is that a thing? It is a thing. Um, and you're like, I don't, I don't know if it should be a thing. Well, I didn't write the Bible. I don't write the news. I don't write the book. I just, you know, deliver it. And so that's what Paul is addressing in this church in Corinth. Uh, and so they have been looking at in their entire life, and then the entire life of this church, entire book so far, they've been looking at the culture of Corinth, which is a, a, a radically progressive, uh, particularly sexually deviant uh, prostitution, idolatry, sex, you know, cults going on. That's where that's the culture they're in. And so they've been taking their cues from culture regarding sex. That's, and so Paul's writing to them to address it. That's like the, the subject that he spends uh, his entire time on today. Additionally, a couple weeks ago, we talked about sexual morality. He talked about any sex outside of the covenant of marriage is a sin. Um, but the, the Corinthians have, have adopted the sayings and the, the, the mindset of the culture around them. And that is this. He says this in verse 12 of chapter 6. Uh, we're looking at culture or Christ. Who are you going to follow? They're following the culture. And the culture says this. This is why you see it in quotes. All things are lawful for me. This is not a quote given by God to, to the Corinthians. This is a quote from the, the culture in Corinth. They're saying, all things are lawful for me. If it's legal, you can do it. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. And so he's speaking here about sexual morality or sex in general. And so they're saying, hey, if it's legal, we can do it. If it's legal, we can do it. And so, but Paul says, all things may be lawful, uh, legal for you, but not all things are helpful. And he says it again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or enslaved or mastered by anything. He continues and he, he, says, he uses another quote from the culture where they say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. Meaning that, you know, just like you have a, a hunger, you have an appetite for food, uh, you have a, a sex drive and you should, you should you know, figure out a way to, to solve that problem just like you figure out your food problem. That's what they were saying. And he says this, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant, this, here's what he says, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so the Corinthians here are taking their cues from the culture. God has called us Christians, uh, he's calling the Corinthian Christians as well, to, to take their cues not from the culture but from Christ. That's the big point here. And so all things are lawful for me. They're saying as long as it doesn't, uh, it's not illegal, uh, then, then, then we're good. Here's the problem with that is that as laws continue to progress, uh, things that were once illegal become legal. Uh, I promise you, in our day and age, uh, we are headed towards the, the reality and the legalization of, of pedophilia uh, or, or, ch or, or sex between uh, non-adult-aged uh, uh, humans, so children and adults. Like that, is, that day is coming. It's already been talked about in, uh, in TED Talks in our day, in our age, that it's, it's one of the, the another letters that are going to be on the, in the alphabet of the, the sex identity series that we have going on in our nation. That's where it's headed. And I'm telling you, just because it's lawful, Paul says, doesn't make it helpful. It's not helpful. You ask that child one day if that's helpful. It's lawful. It's, so as long as it's not against the law, they're saying, we're good. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, it doesn't matter if it's lawful. It's not all things are helpful. It may not be against the law, but it may not be helpful. 
Uh, and he says he will not be dominated by anything. He said, so additionally, it may not be, not, it may be lawful, but it might actually destroy you. It might dominate you. It might enslave you. It might rule over you. And, and, and that's not a reason to, to endeavor in it if it's going to trap and, and enslave you just because it's, it's legal. So Christians, these Christians here, and, and even in our day, you know, they, they feel like it may be legal. There's two consenting humans. They agree upon it. Should be good. Should be good. Well, Paul's saying it may, be, it may not be helpful, but it also may lead to enslavement. And so the Corinthian culture, they're, they're looking at, at sex and they're going, if it feels good, try it. If it feels good and they're consenting, do it. It's great. Um, it, the culture doesn't seem to look at sex and its consequences or, or its effects or whether it's helpful or not. And so the culture does, they, 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 they say in their culture uh, that the culture has the, the right to define how sex is used. Our day and age is the exact same thing. We have to see this. In our world today, the culture, and, and I guarantee every single one of you today grew up getting your view of what sex was primarily from the culture. You know, I know this because you preach sermons on this and people, Christians, get real offended. I got, we did a whole series on sex one time and everyone was, and half the church was just real offended and blushing. They're like, we don't talk about this in the church. That's the problem. Where else are you going to talk about it? We're going to talk about it. Well, hopefully at home, well, where are they getting their, their cues from? The scriptures or the culture? Far too often, it's from the culture. And then if you don't hear about it from the church or from the, the word of God, then, then I guarantee you in school you're hearing about it. And then through TV and movies, you're hearing about it. 100% of the time, that, that sex drives the, uh, the plot of movies. And you're like... Learning, you don't know that you're learning, you're learning about what the marriage bed should look like through watching folks on a TV. You know, and you're like, well, it's just the show. It's just the show. Well, that's the only education you're getting if you're not going to God's Word to see what is His standard for how relationships should work together. I, I love, you know, The Office, but I, and a lot of you like The Office too. It's a show, it's good. But the fact that any Christian ever cheered for Pam and Jim to get together is insane to me. It's adultery. Like, and, and we think, oh, it's, it's, just, it's just a show. It forms your heart. The fact that you're emotionally connected to a, a dude who, or a girl who's, who's engaged to another guy and you're hoping just because the guy's a tool bag and that, that the other guy sh- should come in and take her. And that's righteous and honorable. That's damnable and sinful. And Christians who cheer for it have cheered for the wrong team. And we're just like the Corinthians. They're doing the same thing. We're like, well, that's what's going on in pop culture. It doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, Just, you know, we we can coexist together. And Paul's writing them, and he's saying that's not true. It's not helpful. Tell me what relationship you've seen in real life where uh, uh, someone was, uh, maybe this is your own family. You know, your mom and dad were married and someone else came in the picture and it ruined everything. You're cheering for that on TV. And you're like, man, like, I'm broken, but like, I wonder, wonder how that other guy, you know, you don't care because you're conditioned by the culture. God's view of sex is this. One man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime. Period. End of sentence. Anything outside of that has deviated from God's design, period. Now we live in a world, and the Corinthians live in a world, where everyone in the church had deviated from God's design. They had, they had, go, they, they had, they had run away from God's plan, and they needed to be rescued by Jesus, and they have been. They've been saved, redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, as we've talked about this through the Scriptures, through our time in, in, in 1 Corinthians. They've been cleansed and forgiven Their identity is no longer who they once were. They are now sons and daughters of God. And Paul is writing them, you got to act like it. you got to act like it. In this regard, we're talking about sex. So the purpose of sex is is not just who is is it with uh, in the context of marriage, but the purpose is, and we're going to circle back around to this here in a moment, but it's for pleasure, for children, for oneness, for safety and protection, and, and for comfort. Uh, sex is, a, is designed by God, and there's a fence around sex, uh, guardrails around it, 
not for the purpose of punishing, not for the purpose of keeping you from it, but for the purpose of, of flourishing and protection. And this is exactly why there's a fence in my backyard. It's not for the, the, the restriction of my children from playing in the backyard. It's for their protection and for their thriving and flourishing. The reason why there's a fence in my backyard is because the back yard backs up to a field which backs up to the highway. Having them freedom to run into the highway is not going to maximize their joy when they get smacked by a car. Putting a fence up and having them contained in my backyard where they have a limited amount of freedom to play in the backyard, climb trees, throw sticks, make fires, like that's, they can do it in the confines of the backyard. They go to the neighbor's house and light a fire, you know, they get a ticket. Not okay. But in the confines of our backyard, they have freedom. Freedom is not the elimination of boundaries, but it is what God intends for you, the gifts God has for you in the context which he has given it. Sex is a gift from God, we're going to see later, and it is to be used and stewarded and enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so, it may be legal, but it may not be helpful. Additionally, it may be legal, but it may enslave you. Pornography is not illegal in most cases. Uh, it should be in all cases, but it is not uh, in, in some cases in our day and age. Child pornography is, uh, uh, and, and that, no, I'm not even going to get on that subject, but I'll tell you this, porn is not illegal in our nation, but it does enslave. It actually, uh, non-Christians, sociologists and psychologists will talk about how it actually rewires and remaps the male brain. It's like if you if you were if imagine there was a big field with tall grass and you were to walk through that field uh, and 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 you'd be itchy and you know there's no path you're walking through it and it's not fun and it's kind of difficult to get from point A to point B walking through that field the tall grass but if you walk that path long enough what ends up happening is what a trail gets created it's quicker to access the other side of the field. This is what pornography does. It actually remaps the, the brain to where the more the, 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 you, you've plowed a, a pathway in, in, a, in the, the, the brain field or of, of your mind to be more quickly accessible, deviant, and caught up and enslaved into pornography, into the things you're viewing. Additionally, it, it rewires your brain in such a way as if a man or, or someone is looking at pornography on their TV screen or their, their computer screen and there's like a red hat they wear often and frequently next to them, they're not looking at the red hat, they're looking at the TV screen. What ends up happening is that, that they start associating sexual pleasure with the red hat subconsciously. They'll put on the red hat, walk out the door and wonder why they're, oh, I'm being tempted at work now. No, you got a porn brain. That's what it is. Pray for me, brother. No, Get rid of your computer. It's, it, you're, it's, it's you remapped, rewired your brain. You are enslaved. You are dominated. So many men and women in our culture in our day are dominated by sex. They're not free men. They're not free women. They're enslaved. It may be legal, but it's not helpful. It may be legal, but it may be enslaving. He says next, the culture is talking about food. He says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. If you're, if you're hungry, you should eat. If you're the other H word, you should eat. You know, that's what they're saying here is, is that's what he's getting at. If you should have sex, if you're hungry for it, you should just, just do it whenever you want, however you want. It's our day and age as well. And he says the Corinthians are saying that, that this, is, this is their mindset, and this is their mindset in the context of the church. Paul could have written a whole sermon on this reality about food, because food is not just meant for the stomach. Food, we see with Jesus, is bread itself is to point us to Jesus, the bread of life. He could have given a whole sermon on what food is, but he just concludes here, he's going to make one point here. He says that, that the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. Food's for the Lord. Everything's for the Lord. Everything we do is for the Lord, period. Your body, for the Lord. It is not meant for sexual morality. Sexual morality will ruin you. It will ruin you. And so some will say, though, okay, it ruins me, but it doesn't hurt you. Let me, let me have the freedom to do what I want. Sex is my thing, and, you know, it's just two consenting adults. Why, why, why bother? Don't, I'm not hurting anyone. Perhaps that's true. It's not. But just ask any kid, any kid whose dad cheated on his mom how that did not affect him. His dad's sexual sin had no effect on his life. Ask any child. It's not, it does not affect just you. 
It affects everyone. Additionally, ask any dad who's got porn brain and he has now a teenage daughter and he cannot help but to think of his daughter and his daughter's friends sexually because of the stuff he's watching on the TV screen. He hates it. He doesn't want it to be like that, but that's where he's at. He finds himself there. Tell me or to ask him that his sexual deviance and sin has no effect on the way he interacts with people, the way he, he, can, he can't even be near his daughter. These stories are not abstract, but they're, they're, they're a vibrant realities in real people's life in the church today, all over our city. Maybe even some of you. Ask any wife who, who's having a secret, quote-unquote, affair, how that's not affecting her intimacy with her husband currently. It is. It, 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 there's no way to put it any way else than your sex life does not just affect you. It affects everybody. You know. Paul's already talked about how a little bit of leaven, sexual morality, in the church will, will, will ruin the whole piece of bread, the whole lump of dough. It spreads fast. And so pain and regret are real. Some of you, that was your story. These are your stories that you, you have pain, you have regret, and Jesus has offered you hope, redemption, and forgiveness. And, and you've received it. So the point here is that who are you going to take your view of, who, how, how are you going to view sex? Are you going to view from the lens of, of the culture or Christ? Moving forward from here, who is going to, what is the lens in which you're going to look through to determine how you, how, how you have relationships? And so we'll continue. We're going to answer that question along the way. Next, next slide. Whose body, whose choice? So we have a famous quote in our day and age, in our land. So we quoted the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, the food is for the stomach. I'm going to quote our culture. Uh, my body, my choice. You ever heard that? You ever heard that refrain in our, our day and age? Well, both the left and the right have, have used this asinine statement. And so uh, the, the, the left used it to say, hey, my body, my choice, I can kill my baby. That's what it means uh, on, the, on the left. On the right, we've, uh, the right, no, I haven't never used it, uh, uh, they've used it uh, in, the, in the pandemic to say, my body, my choice, don't let, I don't have to wear a mask. Both were doing it. Both are, are man, I got to be careful with my words right now. I just, this, this, this stupid statement to claim that you have your body, your choice, so you can murder, your body, your choice, so you, it's just, it's just crazy to think. That's, that's a refrain in our day and age. That's our culture. Well, let's ask the question, whose body, whose choice? Let's see what Paul says, what God's word says. And it says, God raised the Lord, Jesus, the Lord and will raise us up in, by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Whose body? Not yours. Christ. Whose choice? Christ. Who owns you if you're a Christian? Jesus. If you're not a Christian, yeah, your body, your choice. Do literally whatever the hell you want and go that direction. That's where you're headed. Period. Like, that's it. If you're in Christ, it's not your body. It's not your choice. You're members of Christ. And that's the point he's about to make. So then, so then, or, or shall I then, take members of Christ, Christ's body, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He, like, we were, you're not just in Christ by, by accident. Jesus dripped and bled, or he, he bled out for you. He was pierced for you. Every drop of blood that came from his body was to cleanse your sins. You were bought with a magnificent, mighty price. You, you've become members of Christ through faith. He says, what are you going to do? Are you going to take your body that Jesus has bought, redeemed, and now and the Holy Spirit lives in, and now you're going you're to unite them to a prostitute? Or do you not know this? He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one, uh, becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two, shall, two will become one flesh. But he who, joined, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We are one in Christ. You don't own your body. Christ does. The culture doesn't have saying over your body. Christ does. Christ is to lead us, not culture. So if you're a Christian today, you might have to unlearn some things. Because sexual morality in our day is normal. 
It's normal, but it should not be normal for the Christian. I expect it to be normal for the non-Christian. I expect that to be. They're not, they're not, they, they themselves are not owned by Jesus yet. They're in rebellion, and he's chasing them and wants them to surrender. But at the moment, this time, non-Christians are not submitted to Jesus. But Christians are, and Paul's writing to Christians, going, why are you acting like the culture? The second thing, Jesus, not, uh, he, Jesus cleanses us and forgives us and teaches us to walk in a new life. And this is the part where we love, we love the first thing. We love Jesus to save us, adopt us, to redeem us, to save us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. But the whole walking in the new life thing, what about grace? Ask any single couple that's, that's messing around. Grace. Ask any dad or, or dude who's, who's looking at porn. There's grace. There's so much grace. Yeah, there is grace to walk in the newness of life. Not grace to continue to sin so grace may abound. Literally, quote from Romans. He says in verse 15, he compares this sleeping around to, to, to making, to uniting yourself to a prostitute. And some of you will be like, okay, hey, I don't sleep, I don't, I don't, I sleep around, but not prostitution. Never done that one. Never done that one. What is prostitution? Prostitution is anything in exchange for sex. Anything in exchange for sex. That's what it is. You're like, well, it has to be dollar bills. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Actually, do you even know where the term dating comes from? This, our, whole, our whole modern idea of dating is built off of the prostitution premise. So give me a little, let me give you a little history lesson for a moment, if you'll bear with me. Uh, in, 19, in 1896, the term, the, date, the, coin, uh, the term dating was coined, and it meant to refer to as prostitution. Why? Well, because up to that point, if you wanted to have sex with someone you, and, and they weren't your spouse, what you did was you paid someone for service. Well, dating became a thing where you would pay to, to go out with someone, you, you, a man would typically buy dinner or buy something and then expect something in return. So when, 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 when people were dating and not going through the family unit to, uh, of courtship, people in the society were like, this must be some sort of prostitution thing. So the term dating actually meant and referred to as prostitution back in the 18, uh, late 1800s. And, and not, by 1903, though, so just a few years later, uh, there, there was there's a, a women's magazine called the Ladies' Home Journal. And this is where uh, 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 one million subscribers began to, ladies were subscribing to this magazine. It was the first time in history that, that the pop culture was now defining what it meant to be a woman. This is all the way back in the early 1900s. So 1903, women were now beginning to take their cues, not from uh, God's word, not from the, 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 their parents or their family or the culture around them. They were taking their cues from magazines, journals. That's where they began to, this is what a woman is to be like. And I'm not opting that we go back to the early 1900s at all. What I'm, what I'm just simply saying is this is the, the evolution of, of dating and where we're, I'm going to make my point as we go. And so by the 1920s, uh, the entertainment industry began booming. Restaurants started, started opening up, uh, bars, dancing, you know, the roaring 20s, long cigarettes, hanging out. There's stuff to do. By 19, in the 1930s, the, the, the automobile was, was now accessible to the public. And so now, if you wanted to have a relationship with someone, you could you'd buy a car, you'd get a job, buy a car, and then go to a woman's house and pick her up. And then do the, do the first, for the first time in human history, a man would take a woman away from his father into another city and, and date her. This is the first time in history that, that, that the parents were no longer involved in overseeing the courtship process. And again, I'm not vouching to go back to maybe their, their style of courtship. Whatever movies you're thinking of, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying, by God's design, the house is a place of protection for the, for the daughters of the family. The, the, the older brothers and the dad were to protect their younger sisters. This is what you see in, in Genesis when that got broken up and one, one girl was raped by, by uh, uh, the uh, surrounding folks in the city. The, the brothers got up the next day and murdered that whole family. Not advocating for that, but I'm just saying, we li- it would have been a different day. 
It would be a different day if that's how fathers and, and brothers and sons saw the, the women in their home. They wanted to protect them instead of abdicate responsibility and send them out to a dude who, who bought a cool car, dressed up in some cool clothes, and now wants to, you know, sleep with his prostitute in the evening. You're like, well, I don't, I, I, that's, not what, that's not how I thought of it. Think about it. That's what, this is exactly what happened. This is what men began to do. This is, ask, if you don't believe me, ask some guys. There's literally men still talking about this to this day. I saw a YouTube or a, a video clip of this the other day of, of men today giving advice to other men about, hey, get a good job, have a nice car, wear nice clothes, buy all the drinks at the dinner, pay for the whole check because you deserve what's coming at the end of the night. It's yours to seize. It's, it's insane. But it is perpetuated in the, in the culture. By the time, let's fast forward all the way to the sexual revolution, you know, free love, social movement, it was riding the coattails of, of feminism where they were, they were liberating. Women, women were being liberated from the social, sexual norms of culture. By the 1950s, guess what was then created? The Playboy magazine. So, so it, you had the women's magazine, which told women what to be like, and the porn magazines that would tell women what, or tell men what women will do. That's the culture. And so what ended up happening is more babies were born because sex was, the, 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 was, was so-called seen as free, and, uh, and disease became rampant. There was no more, there was no more uh, covenant of marriage. There was no more uh, safety in the confines of what God had created. So, so more babies are being born. More diseases are happening. Birth c- control becomes created. Abortion becomes legal and so that you can you know, keep the babies away and keep birth control so you can hopefully not have them. And then porn became normal. Abortion became normal. Divorce became normal. And then you and I were born. Like that is the world we, we grew up in and the effects of it. And never did we go in our culture, oh, wow, what a mess we have made. We have really royally screwed up. What do we do? We said, my body, my choice. That's what we did. We turned things around, and we, we continued to beat the drum of this, this false idea that we own the rights to who we are completely autonomously apart from the God who created us. He says, it is not your body, it is not your choice, it's Christ's body. You, the two shall become one flesh. And he's quoting here, Genesis 2, 24. He goes all the way back to God's design. How did God design sex? It's that one man, one woman come together for one lifetime, one marriage. And through the act of, of sexual intimacy, they become one. They become one. And so just like a man and woman are to come, become one in marriage, he, he relates the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have become one with Christ. Therefore, Christ owns our body. Our whole life is meant to, to be dedicated to worshiping Christ, worshiping with our bodies. And that's exactly what he talks about next. And we must choose what brings the most glory to God. He says, flee from sexual morality, verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual morality, uh, but the sexual moral person uh, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom, have you from, uh, whom, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Sexual sin is not just sinning against others. It's not just harming your family, your line, your legacy, your lineage. It's harming yourself. Verse 20, 19 and 20 should totally change our perspective if you're a Christian. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, Jesus owns you, his spirit is in you. He says, do you not know that your body is now a dwelling place, a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you even think in these terms if you're a Christian? You're like, why? Well, I've heard the verse. It means not to get tattoos, right? No, it means to glorify God with your body and not sleep around. That's what it's, it's the, the context is sexual morality here. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. 
So the response is, therefore, glorify God with your body. Therefore, use your body in such a way to glorify God. Now, I want you to think of this in your relationships. Whether you're single, you're dating. Think of if you're single or dating or, or somewhere like that. How do you use your body? Does it glorify God? The way you kiss, the way you hug, the way you touch, the way you, you watch movies, is that glorifying to God? Ask that question, is that? If you're married, is the way you interact with your spouse, is the way you interact with others, is the way you, you use your body, is it glorifying to God? We've got to move past our, our, the cultural norm and just taking the path of least resistance, start choosing the path that gives the most glory to God. That's our aim. I don't care what's easier. I don't care what makes the most sense. I don't care. Every person who's sleeping together and, and every Christian who's sleeping together or living together always tells me it's just practical. So is kindling for fire. But do you want to be that? I don't. It's practical. It, just because it's practical doesn't mean it's helpful. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's not stupid. Like that's the reality. If you're a woman and you are living with a dude, I need you to know your chances of being murdered have exponentially increased. It's true. More murders happen among women who are living with their boyfriends than they are in the context of covenant marriage. And a father who's like, I want to send my daughter to live with some dude is an insane dad. That dude needs to be locked up. I'll tell that dad to his face. I have, actually. I've counseled couples, preached sermons like this, and they came and said, well... Dad said we could live together. I was like, well, call dad up and tell him he's a criminal because he is just insane. He's, he's defied God. He's defied God. You're like, well, my, I, this is, my father-in-law wanted me to live with my, my now wife before we got married. Because if you do that, then I'll, you know, I'll pray. I, was like, I will live with her, but not until we get married. I'm more scared of God than you. Like, it's just, and he respected me for that. He did. He did. I need us to see. I need us to see. It's not what's easy, convenient, practical. It's what brings God the most glory. It is not practical to, to you know, if you're, it's 12 o'clock at night and you're, you're with your boyfriend and your girlfriend and y'all, you know, you've been watching a movie. It's not practical to get in the car and drive home. It's not. But it brings God the most glory. How many times do you make your decisions in life? Where you choose what is just the easy, most practical thing. How many of you who are married were like, you can now testify that you chose the path of least resistance nine times out of ten. You didn't choose the path that brought the most glory to God. You wish that you would have you had heard the sermon then. You wish that there had been men and women in your life pressing you to this degree. You wish that you would have listened to the advice when it happened. You wish that you didn't go into the marriage with the scars, the baggage, the sin, when your friends and your family and the church were pleading with you not to go down the path that was uh, uh, against what God had laid out for you. How many of you, that's your testimony, that's your story. I need you to know if that's you, continue to herald that to Others in this church and others you see, Christians, who are on the path that is not bringing the most glory to God, speak into their life with love because you love them. And you have the scars to prove it. You're like, hey, I wouldn't do that. Paul is not trying to, to, to keep them from enjoying what God has given them. He's trying to tell them that sex is like a fire. It's really good in its right context. A fire is great in the oven or in the fireplace. It's not good in the living room, on the couch. It'll, ruin, it'll burn your house down if the fire, an actual fire, is not placed in its proper confinements. But if it's placed in the proper, like the you know, offset of your smoker, it's going to produce great meat to the glory of God. But to take that fire and then put it into your living room will destroy your house. Sex is the same thing. It's very powerful. It's really awesome. And, it, and, it, and it's to be enjoyed. That's exactly what God has intended sex to be. And so the next point is sex is a gift from God. Let's get to the, what you've all been waiting for. Now concerning matters then which I wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, again, we see another quote. Paul is not saying this. And so many Christians misunderstand this. They think Paul's saying it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not if, unless they're married. 
But he's, he's saying, I'm going to get to what they're meaning here in a second. But, but verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So if you're single and want to have sex, he says, get married. Like, well, shouldn't we want to know more than that? Like, yeah, you should. But if that's where your head's at and that's all you're doing, it'd be better to get married. It would be better to get married. He says later, it would be better to get married than to burn with passion. It's like the whole fire thing again. It's like you, need, you have a fire, put it in the fireplace. That's what he is saying. So if you want to have sex, get married. Well, I don't know if we're ready to get married. I don't know how many times I've heard this. Well, I don't know if we're ready. Then stop sleeping around. Stop living together. It's, well, that feels good. It's fun. It is. But God says it's for marriage. Like, well, does God really mean that? Like, he meant it. Well, the culture, everyone I know is doing it. They seem to work, it seems to work out. I don't know if you looked around, but I'm not looking to head where the rest of the culture is headed. It doesn't matter if they're heading even a good direction. What does God say? Stop choosing the path of least resistance. Choose the path that brings the most glory to God. And apparently there's this even crazier thing going on in Corinth where the married people stopped having sex. So the, the, the Christians, the single Christians in the church were, were sleeping around and the married ones weren't. The married Christians are like, oh, sex is bad. That's what he says. It's good for a man who not to have sexual relations with a woman. So then you get this weird stuff where pastors are taking vows of celibacy and this whole movement in the Roman Catholic Church where you have nuns and priests and it's like, this is the most glorifying to God. No, it wasn't. That this is not a thing. It is, it is not good for, it is good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman in the context of marriage, not outside of that. His point here is that there's married couples going, sex is bad. And see, this happens in culture. And, and sometimes in churches, oftentimes you'll hear it where sex is bad. If you're single, don't have sex. Don't have sex. Don't have sex. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. So save it for the one you love. Sounds appealing, right? No, it doesn't. You get married and you're like, wow, we've got to do the bad thing now. Like, no, it's not. And then some of you have looked at culture and look at, man, look how perverted sex is. You look at the porn industry. You're, you, 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 because of your sin, your past, you're like, Sex is just gross. I just, to think about sex and I think about my sexual sin, maybe sin committed against me, I just struggle to view it as a gift. So you have some people who are in, in the church are like, sex is gross. You look at, you have these other people who are just like, sex is awesome. You need to understand this. Sex is a gift from God in the context of marriage. That's what it is. And Paul says, that's why you should get your own wife. Don't get someone else's wife. Don't get someone on the screen's wife. Get your own have your own, and she can be only yours. Ladies, get a husband, have one, and only him. That's what he says. And so this sex is a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Paul is talking now to Christian couples. So Christian marriages that are sexless marriages are awful marriages, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm not saying there's struggles. I'm not saying there's struggles. What I'm saying is that by God's design, sex is a gift. So if there's, if there's a, a reason in your marriage, well, well, because of sexual sin in your past, because of trauma or sin committed against you, because of, of, of things that have gone on in your life that, that, that have hindered now your relationship with your husband and your wife and you struggle uh, in, the, in this category in, in intimacy, that's, I'm not saying, I'm not condemning you. And, and what I'm saying is that it's awful, right? It is awful. It's not fun. And you're not, you're not glad that you are living in a sexless marriage if that's you. Or you're not glad that you struggle to, to be intimate with your spouse because of sin or trauma that's happened to you. You're not, you're not pumped about that. Like, this is awful. This is, this is, I don't want it to be this way. So I'm not saying that there's not struggles because of brokenness and sin. But what I am saying is that sex is designed by God for you to enjoy in the context of marriage. It is a gift. It's a gift for pleasure. There's a whole book called Song of Sol Songs or Song of Solomon that's only about pleasure. And there's also, uh, as, as Genesis 2, be, be fruitful, multiply. Uh, it's for children. So sex is to be fruitful. So Christian couples who never want to have kids, 
who could have kids aren't using sex according to God's design. It's to be pleasurable, but it's also to produce children. I'm not saying you have to have as many children as possible, but I'm saying the, the, the idea that a Christian couple would never want to have sex is not understanding the design for sex. Sex is for oneness. The two shall become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. Uh, it's for safety. The, 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 the confines of marriage means that you're safe between your husband and your wife. It's an intimate thing. You're, there's protection, there's trust. We see after David and Bathsheba lost their first child, it was for comfort. They knew each other, they comforted one another. There's a comfort. This is the gift that keeps giving. It's for pleasure, for children, for oneness, for safety, for protection, for comfort. Sex is a gift that keeps giving. It's to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. So now he turns his attention specifically to marching orders for the husband and wife. Husbands, you should give, uh, uh, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. This is chapter 7, verse 3. And likewise, the wife should her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So he's continuing this logic. So Jesus, you've become one with Jesus, so he owns you. He owns you. Not, not your body, not your choice. Additionally, he says, now that you've become one in marriage, not your body, not your choice. Husbands, your body, not yours. Whose is it? Your wife. You're like, well, she doesn't like the way it looks. Well, go on a diet. Like, I don't know. It's her body. I'm not going to say the other. Y'all have your own conversations. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. And that's real. I get it. In our day and age, in, our sexually perverted, in a sexually perverted culture, a statement like this, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, you meet, but the husband does, you immediately, the images you get 100% have been viewed by, or have been, have been uh, uh, filtered by the porn industry. That's why you don't like that verse. That's why you don't like the verse. The porn industry affects the, the, the media. It affects the movies you watch. You're like, that just seems demeaning to a woman that a man would have authority over the woman's body. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Yeah, well, it's not what he's saying. He's not saying look at the porn screen and say, hey, honey, let's do this. It's not what he's saying at all. See, Adam and Eve didn't try it before they bought it. They didn't take it for a test ride. Adam and Eve didn't even know her name until his wedding day. God said, hey, here's this woman I made to help you. Her name's Eve. Congratulations. May the marriage commence. They didn't even, she didn't know the name. What did Adam do for a living? I don't know. He's the only man here. Like they didn't even, their wedding planning was real cheap. No, no outfits, no bridesmaids, no groomsmen, just Jesus and the angels and uh, their, their, their birthday suit. And they got married. It was awesome. God said it was very good, actually. Best wedding there was. God wasn't ashamed for them to become one flesh. He wasn't blushing when they, they had sex for the first time. He expected that Adam's body was no longer his, but it was Eve's. Eve's body was no longer hers. It was Adam's. And so he gave them authority over one another's bodies. And then he continues, verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another. Don't withhold sex from one another, except perhaps, how many caveats has this guy got to give? Except perhaps, maybe, by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, and then come back together quickly so Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a con- I say this as a concession, not a command. I say this. He's like, I, maybe you should cease if you agree for a limited time, perhaps, maybe. I don't recommend it. I, kind, I, I don't know. That's where he's at. That's where he's at. He says, don't deprive one another, meaning, and you just see this. He, he says, don't deprive one another, but he also says that you have the, uh, the, the husband has the authority over his wife's body. The wife has the, the authority over her husband's body. But notice what he says. He says that this, this authority was meant to serve and bless. It's not meant to be selfish. Man looks at porn, what is he doing? Selfish. A man takes a woman out, buys her dinner, pays for her drinks, takes her home. Sex is selfish. The world's view of sex is 100% selfish. 
Yes, when you look at it that way, it looks gross. It looks perverted. It looks awful. It's a counterfeit of what God created. Marriage, in marriage, God grants the authority of our bodies to our spouses. He's not granting the authority of our bodies to men in general or women in general, but to one man, one woman, one life, one spouse, to serve, to bless. He says, don't deprive one another of that service. Don't, don't deprive one another of that blessing. It's like when I, when I, like I said, in the context of marriage, there's a bunch of freedom. In the context of my backyard, my kids can do a lot of things. They can do a lot of things. It's not, the, the confines of the backyard is not meant to, to thwart their joy, but to maximize it. The context of marriage is not meant to, to thwart your joy and pleasure, but to maximize it. Don't deprive one another. This means that sex is a selfless act, not a selfish act. It's for mutual enjoyment, mutual blessing. But because of sin, because of brokenness, because of lies, because, we've, because of sin against us, and because of Satan's attack on us, this can be challenging. I need you to see this, that if you're single, that, that what God, what, or sorry, what Satan wants from you, he wants to get you in bed, sleeping around. That's his tactic. Single person, Satan's t- tactic, get you in bed. Married couple, Satan's tactic, keep you out of bed. Like, wow, that makes so much sense. We got married and it got way less tempting. What happened? Like, we, we were really... It was, it was something prior to marriage, and now it's just, what's, what's changed? The enemy's tactic. How many of you married couples, don't raise your hands, but uh, before, you know, it's, it's, you're, you know you're, you're, you're hoping to be intimate, and you fight. Like, your best fights are whenever you're, when sex is on the horizon, right? Like, why is that? Because Satan hates you. He hates sex. He, he wants to distort it. You're single. How come y'all never fight? It's all great. And man, after we fight, it's even more passionate. Yeah, because Satan hates you and wants to ruin you. It's, it, you don't, be, don't believe the lies. It will be a fight because of sin and brokenness in our life. The enemy's attack on our marriages, there will be, it will be a challenge. But it's a challenge that you should pursue. Man, you should be like, onward Christian soldier on this one. Like, I'm ready to fight the enemy so we can... You know, do verse 3 and 6, 3 through 6 together. But just like Adam is passive with his own sin, passive with the serpent, men become passive in their home and passive when it comes to the enemy's attack on his marriage. And then he, he allows the enemy to, to, to create disunity between him and his wife. And they go days and weeks without being intimate. And then the temptation to pornography becomes the thing that satisfies him. And because of his passivity, he ruins his marriage. And just like our first father, Adam, ruined their marriage by believing the lie of the serpent that you could get pleasure, get satisfaction outside of God's design. It's a lie. So Paul's like, y'all should not stop sleeping together unless you're going to have a prayer meeting. That's the thing. Agree to it. You're like, the prayer meeting is the thing. And he's like, I don't know, maybe sometimes you might want to, but you don't have to. That's what he's saying. So that means that if you're married and you got to talk about expectations, you got to talk about sexual needs, you got to talk about desires, you got to talk about things you want to try, you want to, how do we serve one another? And I need you to know this I'm not expecting you to go home and overnight, like, fix everything. Go, Al said this, you got to change. Repentance. I'm first time I'm lining up for this one. Like, but I need you to, it might take persistence and prayer with much patience. Because the reality is, if you haven't been viewing sex as a gift from God, and you haven't been stewarding in such a way that glorifies God, there's a lot of baggage that you have right now that you've got to walk through, you've got to talk through. And you've got to have an unrelenting pursuit to, to choose Jesus' best for you and have the patience to walk with your spouse through. Where, you're at, where you find yourself today. Additionally, this means that you shouldn't have to, men, you shouldn't have to buy, Christian men shouldn't have to buy dinner for their wife, do chores for sex. It's called prostitution. I need you to see that. You gotta think that way. If women and wives, if, you are, if that's how you, you, you dish out you, what he says that you should not withhold, oh, when you do dishes, I love you more. I'm more open. Well, that's, you're making yourself a prostitute. I need you to see this. 
Don't do that. And men, just because your wife hasn't affirmed you that day, encouraged you, told you how proud of you she is and how you worked so hard to bring, you know, you know, in the money and provide, doesn't mean you withhold anything from her. Marriage, this is, that is a us taking our cues from culture, not Christ. He says don't deprive. There's, there's literally no de- depriving one another. It's serving one another. It's an act of worship. It's an act of honoring the Lord Jesus. And so don't treat sex like prostitution. Your wife shouldn't have to do certain things for you to earn her love and respect. Men and, and women, the inverse is true too. Should be given. Now, I'll say this. Serving your spouse, doing some dishes, helpful. Shouldn't be the requirement though. You shouldn't levy sex in this way. It's ungodly. We need to, as Christians, have a biblical perspective of sex and marriage. Yes, we should. Men, serve your wife, buy her flowers, do all those things, but not to get something. Because you love her. You want to honor her. You want to show her how much you appreciate her. Christians need to understand that a biblical perspective on sex and marriage is what, is what we must have. Additionally, the Christian marriage should be a marriage that is frequent in, in sexual intimacy, passionate, enjoyable, and a satisfying sex life. That is what God has intended for his people. Sex is not the culture's, it's Christ's. If not, if you don't pursue that, you're not working to cultivate that in your marriage. If you, um, hear this, if you don't seek to cultivate that, it's hard. It's like working a field, plowing a field, working a hard job. It's a blood-bought promise that God wants you to enjoy, but it takes work, and it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't want to endeavor to do that, just know this. You are giving yourself over willfully to temptation, both in the porn realm and in the adultery realm. It will ruin you. Paul says, hey, devote yourself to prayer for a little bit and then get back at it because Satan might tempt you quickly because of your lack of self-control. So if you're not going to have sex, it must be, number one, must be mutually agreed upon. Number two, it's perhaps for a limited time, like a few days maybe, while you're devoted to prayer. That's what you're devoting yourself to. That's the only thing. He's like, I can't think of anything else that you should stop doing that for but prayer. Like, well, what if I have a bad, I'm in a bad mood? He's saying repent of that because sex is not self to be selfish. You do need self-control because you may have a baby. Uh, if you, you, you do this a lot, you might get one. Uh, and, you, and there's some time after having a child or maybe you're sick. Your, your spouse is sick. But remember, this is, we're, we're not, sex is not selfish. So if you see your spouse, they're sick, and they're not desiring to be intimate, your heart should go, I want to serve you maybe in other ways. Maybe not sexually, but, but physically. How can, I, how can I care for you? You're t- maybe you're tired. But you agree together. Like, hey, I'm so tired. We're both tired. Let's go to bed. And if you're, if you're not, and, or maybe providentially hindered, you're at different locations, or maybe, or something, you are, uh, you, you just had a baby, or maybe you're sick, and you're like, man, I really want to serve my wife and help her, uh, but she's sick, uh, so I got to do that service and not that other service, but uh, this is going to be hard for me. Well, praise God, you got prayer. Pray. Oh, I'm, I, I'm tempted. I want, yep, pray. Pray, pray, pray. Pray. If you don't have nothing to pray about, pray about your sex life for when you come back together. But pray. But I'm sure there's something you can pray for. Is there financial provision? If you need prayer, just ask me what you can pray for. There's a lot of needs in the church. You could devote your time to prayer. Point is, be intimate often, frequently, as much as you want, desire, as you agree upon together, and pray. That's the right and left hand of the marriage. Pray a lot. Have a lot of fun. You should be praying. I need you to know this. Prayer, this is why I don't recommend singles praying together alone. It's like the number one thing I don't recommend. Praying together alone is a very intimate thing. Christian couples, if you want to spice up your sex life, throw a prayer meeting. Start praying together. Man, do you pray with your wife every night? 
No. If you don't, then that, that, that is an indication of probably some other things in your life. If you say, well, we have a great sex life. Well, pray more. Start praying. I'm just telling you, praying together is actually very intimate. You're both being vulnerable before the Lord. You're taking your request to God. It's something that, that God actually brings the two together even more than in the bedroom. And he says, he gives this concession, and he's referring to, hey, I'm offering you permission to refrain from sexual relations for a short period of time. Paul does not demand such abstinence, but he thought he might permit it. That's what he's saying. He expects the marriages, Christian marriages, the sexual intimacy to be frequent. Now, he ends with this, verse 7, single and celibate. He says, I wish you were as my, uh, myself. I wish all were as myself, but each has his own gift. One of one kind and one of another. See, Paul is not married. He's not married, but here's, and here's what he is. He's not longing for sex either. He's not. He's, he's, he, he has a desire. He, he's the one who just wrote all this. He said, I want you to get married because you are really, you know, wanting it. He's not saying that he's burning with the same passion. He's not saying that just because he's not burning with the same passion, there's something wrong with him either. See, oftentimes we hear in our culture, and I hate the term, the gift of singleness. Singleness is not a gift. Celibacy is a gift. How many of you, uh, when you were single, you're like, this is not a gift. I want to be married. So what we tell people who are single, and like, you know, singleness is, it could be a gift. And you're like, sounds like a curse, like, because I want to get married. And then so you're telling the person who's single, well, you know, uh, desiring marriage, you know, it, it may not be godly to desire marriage. You should consider being single. Like, yes, consider it. But if you, Paul will say later, if he's, you're burning with passion, get married. Desiring to have sex is not a bad thing. It's a gift of God. It's been distorted by culture, but it, has been, it is a gift from God. There is a gift, though, of celibacy, the gift of not having sex, not being tempted in the same way. And just because maybe you have a low libido, that's not what I'm saying, and you're like, maybe you got thyroid issue. I'm not saying that, oh, all of a sudden, you're, you got the gift of, of celibacy. I'm telling you this. If you got the gift of celibacy, you probably know. And if you're questioning it, you probably don't. This just... It's just a reality. It's just a reality. Paul is not saying that I wish you were all, I wish everyone for the rest of humanity, all the Christians were no longer married. So there'd be no more children. There'd be no more fruitful multiply. There'd be no more fulfilling God's original creation intent. That's not what he's saying when he says, I wish you were all like me. He says, I wish you were all like had self-control. I wish you were all led by the Spirit. I wish that you were all operating in your, your giftedness. Some of you are just being wild and crazy and foolish and worldly. So we are taught in our day that sex is what defines you. If you're, if you're into men, be into men. If you're into women, be into women. If you're into both, like, that's cool. Uh, neither, if you're into neither, that's cool. Just chase your passion. That's what we're taught by culture. Paul is rebuking that. He's saying sex is a gift from God to enjoy in the context of covenant marriage and to enjoy it frequently. And this is what any gift giver does. If someone gives you a gift, they expect you to do what? Use it. Ever given someone a gift for Christmas and you find out they never, they returned it? You're like, man, they're not my friends anymore. They must hate me, huh? How many of you, God has given you a gift in marriage? Do you see it that way? If you put it on the shelf, you're not enjoying it. Or some of you, you're trying to snatch the gift before it's time. We live in a twisted world, a twisted world. And some of you, even you're struggling to even hear this because of sin that's committed or against you or, or and just circumstances in your life. There's, something has happened. Loss of a spouse. Something has happened. And you just struggle here. And so Paul says, hey, there is a, there is a gift that comes from God to keep you content in the state that you're in. Don't neglect that if God has given you that. Don't be wishing for something that God hasn't currently given you. He has given you his spirit. You are one with Christ. So if you're single, be content until God provides a spouse for you. 
I need you to see this. And I'm nev- we will never say, and I have never said, if you're single, you have little value. Someone in here for sure thinks I just said that. After that whole sermon, they're like, well, if you're not married, then you can't have fun sex. I did say that. But I didn't say if you're not married, there's something wrong with you. I didn't say if you're not married, then shame on you. I didn't say if you're not married, then, then you know what? God doesn't have anything for you. If you're not married, then you have little value. If you're not married, you can't be fruitful. And I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, if you're not married, stop having sex. That's the only thing I'm saying in regards to not being married. And if you are, if that's you, maybe, maybe I'm going to ask you this question. If you are sexually active, continually with your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is, you're the porn screen, wherever you are, if that's you, sexual morality is your thing, let me ask you this question, how long will you continue to anger God? How are you going to continue? Man, you don't like it when someone angers you for a moment. You're like, they need to stop that now. I'm telling you, you should be far more concerned about what God thinks of your rebellion. There's much grace for you. There's a lot of kindness. But it's to bring you to repentance, not to keep you in disobedience. So if you're single, flee from sexual morality. That's what Paul says. Flee from sexual morality. Make action steps if, to, to prepare yourself for marriage. That means you might go, you know, guy, find a girl, go on a date. Pursue a woman. Get a job. Whatever you need to do to ready yourself for marriage. It doesn't mean sleep around. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit, which one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Exercise it. And choose the path that brings the most glory to God if you're single. If you're a single man, single woman, wait on the Lord, pray and ask him for a spouse, and trust that he will provide. It may be a week, it may be a month, it may be a year, it may be years. There are people in this church that prayed for years for a spouse. They're testimonies to you. Hold the line, choose the path that brings the most glory to God. Now, if you have the gift of celibacy, you shouldn't have been offended by my statement about Singles praying for a spouse. I get it. Every sermon I ever do of this, it's like I get offended. I offend someone, single person. If that's you, you're offended by this. You need to know you don't have the gift of celibacy. I'm praying that you would be married. I am. I'll put it on your prayer card. We'll pray for you. We believe in that. You're like, well, are you saying that if I, I have no value unless I'm married? No, I'm not saying that. If you want to be married, I agree with you. You should be married. Let's pray about that together. Just like someone is like, I need God to provide, you know, a house for me and my family. So we pray for that, Pastor? Absolutely. What's the difference between a dude saying, hey, I want to be married. We pray for me, a young lady. Hey, I want to be married one day. We pray for me? Yes, absolutely. We're going to pray. And to those who have testimonies of God working and while you're waiting, man, share that with your community group this week. So if you do have the gift of celibacy, May your chief ambition also be to glorify God. And if you're married, you got assignments. Work on your sex life. Flee from sexual morality. That means porn. That means stop lusting after other people. Stop being emotionally connected to other people. Repent. Flee from all of that. And start working on and cultivating this great gift God has given you. To steward the sex life for the glory of God. So, that's what you can do tonight. For the glory of God. And so we are over, have a much more I could say, but I'll end with this. I'll end with this. Some of you might today hear all this and be rejoicing. I praise God for that. Some of you might just be radically aware of, man, your own sin. And the enemy might be doing right now, I sense this, that, that right now, you, though you're married, you're just reminded of all the sin you committed prior to your marriage. You feel guilt and shame for your past. And so as we respond and as we take communion, what I want you to do is to remember that Jesus' blood does forgive sins, not just past sins, present, future sins. And therefore, when you are reminded, when you're reminded of your sin in your past, I want you to be also at the same time reminded of the grace of God. That though you rebelled against him, he saw you in your sin and said, I want that man, I want that woman in my family. I'm going to pay for them to be in my family with my life. I'm going to cover them 
cleanse them and make them one. So as we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we're going to remember Jesus' body broken for us. We're going to remember his shed blood for us. Remember the forgiveness of sin. And so that we leave here not allowing the enemy to have a foothold in our mind to make us, if we're single, feel unworthy. If we are celibate to to think that we've chosen the path that God doesn't uh, have for us. And if we're married, we're not going to let our past sexual sin define who we are, but walk away cleansed and ready for a conversation so that we can work, cultivate, and walk in what God, this great gift God has for us. Let me pray. Jesus, we we ask that we would choose Christ over culture in everything we say and do. Would you bless these men and women, those who are single, those who have become single because of uh, trial and circumstance, those who are married, those who are struggling in marriage, those who are engaged, all of us in here, may we start to see things, uh, the things that you've given us as gifts, uh, particularly may we see sex as a gift to enjoy, not to covet, not to, not to shame or despise, not to get frustrated by, but a gift to cultivate, to walk in. And so I ask that you bless these men and women as they have to have conversations with one another, as they, have, as they pray with one another, as they seek to do what your word says. May they define their, their sexual relationships with their spouse according to Jesus, your word, will, and ways, not that of culture. And may we see, by your grace, healed marriages, transformed lives, and, and, and just a blessing upon this church family. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.